0: Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Sean Atwood. Sean is a speaker, best-selling true crime author, podcaster, YouTuber, educator and activist. After becoming a stock market millionaire in the 1990s, you moved to the US state of Arizona, where you became deeply involved in the bubbling rave scene and went on to mastermind an international drug smuggling operation, importing and distributing around £4 million worth of ecstasy and working in direct competition against mafia mass murderer Sammy the Bull Gravano. On the 16th of May, 2002, a SWAT team smashed into your home and after facing a 200-year sentence and being held in remand for two years, you were convicted and sentenced to nine and a half years in one of the toughest prisons with the highest death rates in the US, where you served nearly six years before being deported back to England. Banned from America for life, your story has featured in countless articles, was published by Random House as the English Sean Trilogy, party time. (laughs) hard time (laughs) and prison time and was featured worldwide on the National Geographic channel as an episode of Locked Up Abroad called Raving Arizona. Today, you campaign against injustice through your books and renowned blog, John's Jail Journal. You talk to audiences of young people across the UK and Europe about your experiences and the consequences of getting involved in drugs and crime. And you have appeared on the BBC, Sky, CNN and TV in over 40 countries talking about issues affecting prisoner ri- prisoners' rights. Sean. It's an honour to have you here. Welcome to the show. Elliot, it's an honour to be here. If I had a house,
1: I would aspire to have a studio like this with these framed pictures from antiquity. Gatsby-era women on the walls. This is classic. I, I, just the, the energy in here. The, the, um, I, I hope to have a studio
0: like this someday. It's brilliant. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm yeah. glad you like it. I really am. Yeah, you know, it's uh, yeah. it's good that you are feeling the vibe. The whole house. I've been <laughs> yeah. on the road
1: for three weeks. Yeah. I had the best sleep in three weeks last night, away from my own house. It's brilliant. Yeah,
0: yeah. well, <laughs> okay. I couldn't be happier, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, your story um, obviously has been well told, and um, yeah, it's it's really astonishing and the turnaround in your life is, is really remarkable. So, Thanks. I mean, it's, it's amazing to see. If we can go back to the origins, um, yeah. yeah, just a, a bit of an introduction as to your early life and, and growing mm. up. Did you ever have a passion as a teenager? <laughs> I did, actually. What was it? It was golf. <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you pursue that passion? Yeah. yeah. Are you still pursuing that passion?
0: Uh, yeah, less so now, but yeah, it's still, it's still a passion. And yeah. what about
1: these interviews? Is that, was that something that's been recent, or did you
0: aspire from um, your age? Oh, that's, it's difficult. I don't think that early in my life I expected that I would be doing this, if I'm honest. Yeah.
1: Because, so. all right, well, when I was at school, <laughs> I was split. I didn't know whether to be a computer programmer. Okay. I was programming games on my Atari 400 or I didn't know whether to go into the stock market. Hmm. And over time, the stock market won out, started trading as a teenager, doubled money. My nan gave me 50 pounds, doubled it right away. Went down the library, ordered dozens of books on the subject. And that decision took me on this life path whereby in america i moved to phoenix arizona after uni made all this money but i had no common sense (laughs) or maturity okay now i remembered the effect the rave scene had had on me in this country i was an anxious student wouldn't dance wouldn't talk to women started on ecstasy wouldn't stop dancing all night long didn't even want to take a pee break i'm completely hugging strangers just smiling all night long and and it had such a profound effect on me. I resolved that when I moved to America, I would transfer that dance scene over there. Hmm. And that's what I ended up doing after I made a couple of
0: million in the stock market. There's a couple of questions that I could ask. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll ask you the first question, which is my logical question. Yeah. What was your, your strategy around investing?
1: Okay, on my YouTube channel, I've got a series of videos- Have you really? On my strategy for stock market investment. Okay. It's a stock market playlist. Now going back to when I was first on True TrueGRD podcast just over two years ago, yeah. I was getting inundated with people asking to buy Bitcoin. Right. And I said, there's a staying in the stock market when your barber or your somebody from the regular working community starts asking about investments, it's going to crash. Hmm. So everyone who started asking me about Bitcoin, I said, this is a bubble. I looked at the graph, it replicated the, um, the bubble of the 1929, preceded the 1929 crash. It, it replicated yeah. the uh, tulip mania bubble of Holland. And I told everybody, you're gonna get burnt, stay away from this. I should have sold it short. Hmm. Selling short means you're gonna bet it's gonna go down. Yeah. And on my most recent video, which was posted months ago, I gave my first ever short sale recommendation on the stock market in public to the public. Okay because all the others have been previously about buying cannabis shares. right? And people made a lot of money from those recommendations. I told them when they were gonna peak, I told them to buy them when they crashed. So I recommended people start to short sell Tesla Motors. There's a symbol on Twitter, dollar sign T-S-L-A-Q, which are a group of people who believe that Tesla is gonna go bankrupt. So I started shorting Tesla at 340 US dollars, and it was down to 235 us dollars as of friday's close wow yeah okay i use a method that was taught to me by a guy who mentored me when i was working in the stock market called stan weinstein okay i bought his book when i was a kid visiting america people are going to ask for the name of the book secrets for profiting in (laughs) bull and burr markets it's available worldwide on amazon so i bought his book as a teenager he was my idol i read hundreds of books on the subject and his book and his technique resonated the most and that was the technique I used during the dot-com bubble. In particular, I bought 30,000 shares of an Indonesian satellite company called Pacific Satellite Nunsatra Using his techniques, it did a technical breakout around five, and that one alone went up to $50 a share. And I had multiple other investments in my account as well at that time. Wow. When I was working the stock market, I contacted Stan. I subscribed to his newsletter and he started to mentor me over the phone. And I'm also a member of a platform now called stageanalysis.net. And I do post my more regular trades onto that website. So I urge people to go to that website. It's free to see all that stuff if they wanna see what I'm doing now.
0: And is it to do with charting? Are you looking at historic information? Yes. Basing on future? Weinstein
1: teaches you to look at, in particular, Surges in trading volume that represent inside information. Wow. Insider trading is illegal, hardly anyone ever gets published. You know, they made an example of like Martha Stewart and some other people. But it's prevalent and it will mm. show in the volume surges. Okay. Now, one of the big things that opened my eyes to how the world really works is when I was trading the stock market, I was what's called an options principle. Options are derivative securities. That, they're complex and hard for the public to understand. Mm-hmm. I was trading options before, as, as a teenager, when um, <laughs> Gulf War I broke out, I was trading gold options. Jesus. So I had knowledge of options, but when I was trading the stock market in America, in the days before 9-11, the volume on the options, betting that these companies were gonna go down, surged to 10, 20, 30 times. It's average day average, all the airlines Wow. Yeah, so the traders that were placing those bets knew what was coming. Yeah.
0: What, what was your biggest single trade? My,
1: my biggest single profit in my life was Pacific Satellite Non-Satra. Yeah. Yes.
0: Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I watched, you mentioned the True Geordie. Um, I was watching some of that podcast in preparation for this. Big
1: shout out to Brian and Lawrence. <laughs>
0: yeah. You guys have lit. A uh, a
1: fire under my YouTube channel that is impossible to put out right now. And YouTube has completely taken over my entire life. I can't even get any books written anymore. I'm just constantly (laughs) dealing with YouTube stuff. (laughs) Uh. Start a podcast. They want me to start a podcast. All the YouTube followers started a podcast now, interviewing people, true crime podcast
0: every week. (laughs) YouTube just completely takes over your life. Do do you, I mean, this is maybe a bit of a personal question, do you make sufficient enough money from YouTube to be able to survive? Okay.
1: My income comes from books. Yeah. So once I stopped writing about myself, because I realised there was more important things, such as Pablo Escobar, (laughs) I started to make more money from books on Amazon. So I'm using the money from the books to produce these podcasts. Presently on my YouTube, It's a loss because I'm putting so much into the production of the podcast, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I believe in the long run, it will pay for itself. Yeah. And I'm like the Chinese, I think, strategic long-term in business. Yeah. So this is my biggest investment now is in these podcasts.
0: I like it. I like it. You're a very strategic guy. I didn't think it was uh, just on a whim. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Um, So you you said, just going back to the the true Geordie, you said uh, for 10 years I didn't think I was an interesting enough person to be around unless I was high. Yeah. Tell me about your first experience with ecstasy.
1: It was news headlines every weekend, all these young people just like smiley faces, big eyes, police chasing them down motorways and stuff. I'm like, what the hell is going on in this country right now? because it was a revolution in music. Prior to this scene kicking off, you had to line up at a nightclub, wear a nice suit, bouncers would come out and just look at you and be like, we're not letting them in, not letting them in, maybe we'll let these fit women in, blah, blah, blah. So the kids were sick of it. Mm. So they just started to break into warehouses, break into airplane hangars, <laughs> wear what the hell they wanted, all these <laughs> rainbow-colored clothes, British night s- sneakers, and uh, it, it was like, the whole, um, it became like psychedelic and surreal, this, this revolution in music. And it was a buzz because there'd be like 10,000 people driving on the motorway at two in the morning, man near Manchester. And the police couldn't cope with it. They'd be coming along, they couldn't even get past it. The, how can you arrest all these people, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> my mate from my economics class in uni, Gary, he says, you gotta come and check this out. So I went off to Manchester with Gary, and we went to this club called the Thunderdome. So I go into the Thunderdome, and my my usual shyness, anxiety kicks in. You know, I'm just trailing behind Gary, and he's explaining. You know, so I'm, I hear this music like, like what the hell is that? Signals about this makes no sense whatsoever. It was just this square, boring room with these beepy sounds and everyone is just stood. <laughs> no one's dancing, everyone's just looking at the middle of the dance floor, which is empty, as if expecting an elephant to materialise. Yeah. So I'm like, this, this doesn't make any sense. This is not like what I saw on the TV. So then he goes, right, we've got to get some ecstasy and some Billy, where's some speed? So I'm shitting it now. I've never done a drug transaction before. So, he goes up to some skinheads from Salford. This is like late 1980s. He got like the gangster chains and stuff and (laughs) like hard faces and like, he says what we want and holds up the money. I just thought they were gonna rip us off. The next thing, they gave us these pills. I think they were doves or Mitsubishi, I can't remember. Probably white doves. And these little grams of speed. It's not like the speed in America, the crystal meth. Crystal meth is way stronger. Mm-hmm. So you had to eat a gram of English <laughs> speed to get high. I had friends come to America, if you want me to tell you those, some of those stories later, but they would come and um, eat a gram of crystal meth, Oof. Okay. and they would go off the rails and get paranoid and couldn't sleep for days. So I took the speed, I took the ecstasy, and walking around, you know, I can't feel it, looking at my my watch and I'm starting to panic you know thinking am I gonna have a heart attack from the drugs is it gonna kill me because all of a sudden like my heart's speeding up and stuff and I'm not I'm walking to the bar and my knees buckle I'm like I gotta sit down I've got all this relax my brain's slowing down now the ease kicking in I've got all this Mm. melty feeling in my shoulders I'm just sat there on the floor and people like walking past me, almost kicking me. I just don't care. Just suddenly I'm so happy. All the stress and tension, my exam stress, my car breaking down stress, my breaking up with my girlfriend stress, it's gone. I'm just smiling at all these legs just passing by me and people looking down, smiling at me. And I'm like, I recognise that. Big smile, we've got the exact same big smile. And then the mate finds me and he's got the exact same big smile. And he's like, are you ready to dance? Because I wouldn't dance earlier. There's just no way I was going to dance sober. <laughs> he's like, you ready to dance? I'm like, yeah, if I can get up, and he helps me up. And then the music, that boop, 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 boop. No, it's all making sense. <laughs> It's like, there's a beat, it's like this, my heart's going Boo, boop, 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 The beat's going Boo, boop, 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 <laughs> It's all going with my, synced with my heart rate. So then I'm like, you know, I, I've never danced this kind of music before in my life. So I just start looking at everybody else and you just start moving with everybody else. It's like a wave. It's like the rooms, like the whole room's a wave. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm dancing. I'm actually enjoying dancing for the first time in my life, mm-hmm. and I couldn't stop dancing. And I, in my head, then I never wanted the party to end. I lived for that feeling. Even in my exams, I was sat doing my finals with the boop, 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 yeah. going off in my brain because I was just. Co- I'm still coming down
0: uh. from the weekend doing my finals. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: The, you know what? What I just find fascinating is it doesn't sound like when you're in that state, you're really a risk or a threat to anybody. You know, juxtaposing that to say alcohol, I mean, why do you think that that's illegal? All
1: right, let me say two (laughs) things there then. Prior to the rave scene, football hooliganism in this country was off the scale. Mm -hmm. If you watched the news at the weekend, there were running battles, like braveheart (laughs) size street battles (laughs) of Soccer hoolies <laughs> with Stanley knives and yeah. slashing people, the Chelsea slashes, people smile, they smash mm-hmm. people's faces up. So, when the exocene started, all these rival towns were going to these super clubs in the cities by now, it was like Quadrant Park in Liverpool, big clubs in London, big 10,000, 100,000 people raves and they're all in ecstasy. And these are the people that they were running having these battles with, but now they're all hugging each other and dancing together. Hmm. If you go on YouTube and look at like Quadrant Park, Enjoy was a N-J-O-Y, was one of the anthems back then, one of the songs. Mm-hmm. It's nearly all shaven headed lads that are there dancing to this music, having just getting on. And that made the soccer hooliganism collapse in this country. So that's the answer to your first question. The other thing that made it collapse, of course, was the arrests and the, the cameras and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but you asked why ecstasy is illegal and yeah. alcohol isn't.
0: Well, I mean, just really, that if you look at alcohol and the this, the potential social problems and aggression and whatnot that's inherent with alcohol use and abuse, whereas ecstasy, you're just like in love with everybody. Well, look at the Labour Party. They commissioned Professor David Nutt mm-hmm. to do
1: a study on the harms of all drugs, legal and illegal. Mm-hmm. He concluded that alcohol was, was at the highest on many of the categories, and ecstasy was safer than horse riding. And when he announced those results, Labour Party fired him. So there is an overriding priority of politicians to appear to be tough on crime on all illegal drugs Mm -hmm. at the cost they fear of losing votes. Mm. So even though you've got big time politicians like Bill Clinton, who was a coke addict, who damaged his sinus from snorting so much coke, whose brother was arrested for coke dealing, Roger Mm. Clinton, and on the undercover video I've watched it, Roger Clinton says Bill's got a nose like a vacuum cleaner for cocaine. <laughs> Bill Clinton turned around and put hundreds of thousands of non-violent drug offenders in prison, a record amount, housed the most women in prison for non-violent drug offenders than any other president, mm. even though he was a cokehead himself. That model is copied throughout the world, except for the Scandinavians. The Scandinavians have took prison policy, now some of them, out of the hands of politicians because if we try and introduce something that helps prisoners here Mm -hmm. the media might put a headline out like pedos getting job skills at taxpayers expense Mm -hmm. and the politicians will back off because they've got to appear to be tough on crime Mm -hmm. not that most prisoners are pedos because they're not most prisoners from what i experienced are people with addiction issues and low-level drug users but the media focuses on extreme crimes and says how easy it is, they've got Playstations and gourmet food on the other side to keep the public hating on prisoners. Mm-hmm. Take it out of the hands of politicians, you can have a sensible prison policy. So the government is getting a piece of the action of alcohol, it's ingrained in the system, the taxes. They're getting a piece of action of the tobacco. It's already ingrained in the system. <coughs> we're in, we were indoctrinated, if you go back 100 years, young people in this country have been indoctrinated to smoke and drink. My fa- uh, grandfather was a grenadier guardsman. As a young person, he was sent off to fight the Nazis. And they gave him all cigarettes and told him it was good for your breathing and good for your health back then. Jesus. Doctors were saying it was good for <laughs> your breathing and good for your health. Yeah, he died of lung cancer. Well, what was it? it was the major thing that, that broke him down was the lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Um well, if you look at the harms now, in this country, alcohol is the, drug that kills the most young people. Three young people a week die from binge drinking alone. But the government's got its hand out there. Mm-hmm. They don't have to appear to be tough on alcohol because it's ingrained in the system. So it's it's a cultural thing, it's moral relativism. You've got yeah. people who drink alcohol, who smoke cigarettes and cigars, who take prescription pills obtained legally, incarcerating young people mostly, or racial minorities, mm-hmm. who smoke weed, Yeah who drink illegal drugs such as GHB, Mm -mm. who obtain prescription pills illegally. What gives this class of drug users the right to incarcerate this class of drug users? Precisely. It's big business. It's tens of billions of dollars a year right now. The justice system is one of the biggest employers in the world. So there's a wall of establishment money trying to stop it, but the Mm -hmm. people are sick of it. In America, people are voting to decriminalise weed and that's the state, yeah. not federal government. US federal government has maintained weed as a schedule one substance, more harmful than crystal meth and heroin. I'm sorry, more harmful than crystal meth and cocaine, same as harmful as heroin, with no medicinal value whatsoever. <laughs> that's where what the corporations want it. Mm-hmm. That's who controls, controls the government, corporations.
0: Just, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> what, what, what kind of reform would you like to see around that personally?
1: All drugs should be completely decriminalized, Mm -hmm. including heroin, because the drug laws have created the drug problem.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. People think, and I thought, because the government views drugs as bad, they decide to make them illegal, therefore people won't use them, therefore society will be improved. No, that's not what's happened. Drugs we feel are bad, Therefore, we'll make them illegal. Therefore, completely worthless plants will be more valuable than gold. And the mafia will have the biggest opportunity in the history of the world to mass produce and flood the entire world. And gangsters will fight over that black market profit all day long and create everything from knife crime in London to over hundreds of thousands dead in Mexico with Juarez becoming the murder capital of the world. All a function Mm -hmm. of drug laws. Yeah, And kids now saying it's easier for them to get heroin than it is alcohol because the drug gangs have no qualms selling it to us all Jeez. day long. Should That's heroin so made be made legal? People say that sounds insane. <laughs> what kind of an example does that set to the kids? There'll be heroin addicts all over the place. Portugal did it. They were sick of what was going on with the illegalization and the transmission of diseases and the shoplifting and they decriminalised and the police said, look, that's a bad example. It, it will increase the heroin use. And The addicts were no longer afraid of getting arrested. They came forward and got counselled the drugs and shoplifting collapsed and disease transmission collapsed and Portugal got the heroin addicts down to less than 50,000. Mm. But that doesn't make the prison system any money when you do that. They need constant fodder so that human beings can be reduced to commodities, so they can make their profits. Yeah. Corruptions Corporation of America were boasting their annual report to their shareholders. Our profit go f- is guaranteed because they keep coming back.
0: Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's just not right. <laughs> it plainly isn't right. <laughs> no, it's but, not. Well, there's doing?
1: a war going on on the internet to expose it. Yeah. And the, the public, there's a backlash right now in America because it's gone to such an extreme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they tried to build the biggest kids' prison in the Western world I- in here. Sixty to £70,000 a year they were going to get per, of taxpayers' money per kid. Sick. It is. It absolutely yeah.
0: is. Going back to your own personal story. So when you moved to the US um, and you started getting involved in the rave scene and then ecstasy, and I read that you went from kind of p- procuring locally um, in some amounts, to then basically circumventing people and going directly to the source <coughs> in Holland. Um, what was the main motivation behind you getting, you know, ecstasy available? All right, so
1: I wanted to transfer the rave scene to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, I just started showing off because I had the most money. My nickname was <laughs> the Bank of England. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But then I started to see the business potential of it, and greed took over. Okay. I said to myself, do I need to keep going to the office six o'clock in the morning sales meeting or can I just make money from the party scene? And that's what I did. So ego, greed. Ego, greed, started to apply my business studies knowledge. Yeah. Running it like a corporation. (laughs) Got crime family dinner for the heads of each faction of the corporation every so many months. Everyone's got legal benefits and a lawyer will be assigned to them and bail money assigned to them if they're bailed out. Got protection from the bouncers, you know, um, 20 to 30 armed bouncers running around at the raves. Um, and that's what we did. And it, it got to this point where I'm all of a sudden got about 200 people working for me, throwing raves up to 10,000 people at a time. My ego now getting yeah. as big as the Grand Canyon, <laughs> We're living in a million dollar house on the side of a mountain. Married to a woman who, who she had graduated university, she was an intelligent person, but she was also doing lesbian internet porn.
2: Are you serious? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Got married to her on the Las Vegas Strip. One of the most popular stories at the True Geordie uh, channel. And um, drugs scrambles your decision-making processes. So the drugs are telling me, you're living like a a character out of Pulp Fiction. You're above the law, you're never gonna get arrested. You know, this is just gonna. The party's never gonna end. Like you, like you told yourself when you was at the rave in Manchester, they didn't want the party to end. You've, you have yeah. externalized
0: that now. <laughs> and you've created this world. You manifested it yeah. to perfection. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable. So, so did you ever think you would get caught?
3: Yeah,
1: it got to a point where these things have an arc. Mm-hmm. And the Acme was when I was in the Million Dollar House on the mountain in Tucson in the Sinvacus community. Joe Bernardo Senior, what he had formerly been the head of the Ma- Mafia Commission, was living in that neighborhood. Paul McCartney lived further down the mountain range. Um, that was the absolute peak. And it started to go downhill from the Some of my dealers got robbed by people. And as I am doing more drugs, you're always chasing those early highs when you're getting high. Yeah. But it's never quite the same. And I learned that every time you take drugs, the ability to get back to that is increasingly harder. So the pain rises and the pleasure's going down. Okay. And once you're addicted to the lifestyle, even when the pain goes above the pleasure, you can't stop. And your behavior is becoming more erratic and paranoid. And it was that deterioration of mindset in the people who were working for me and myself that led to the seeds of our destruction because my best friend Wildman (laughs) ended up in a dispute with my best salesman Skinner. Skinner was my closest guy and before Wildman come over I gave him all my attention and when Wildman came over, he became intimidated by Wildman's presence because of Wildman's 25-stone size. And Sammy the Bull's crew, Sammy the Bull Gravano, they ended up luring Skinner to a nightclub in Scottsdale under the pretext of a drug deal mm-hmm. and knocking his teeth out Oof. and taking all of his pills and all of his money and everything. And I, I supported him and tried and helped him rebuild, but the rivalry with Wildman got to such a point where Skinner, he had some gangster dudes throw a petrol bomb through Wild Woman's window. Wild Woman was Wildman's girlfriend from Liverpool, very tough character. While Wildman was in a federal deportation prison. So when Wild- Skinner thought Wildman wasn't going to get out of this federal deportation prison, but I hired a lawyer and expedited the process. And then smuggled Wildman back into the country. I can't remember whether it's through Canada or Mexico at that time. Wildman was deported from America for being a menace to society on his first visit <laughs> years earlier to all this stuff. But I kept smuggling him back into the country. So when Wildman came back to the country, as things were nearing the end, he said he was going to get Skinner and Skinner ended up turning us all into the authorities. Now, I had caught wind of something was gonna go on because I had a source close to law enforcement and he said, look, you should really be leaving town. Um, So what I did was I stopped all of the importation and I thought I got away with it. And I was naive to the statute of limitations they have seven years to catch you for a drug crime.
0: Yeah, that's right. I, could, I read that in your story. Yeah. I didn't realise that. I didn't realise that.
1: So I'd met Claudia, fallen in love with living together. I'd enrolled in college, studying Spanish, back to trading the stock market online on the computer. Mm-hmm. And then May 16, 2002, there was a knock on my door.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. W-
0: what was your reaction to that?
1: So I'm sat at the computer. <laughs>
0: it's like, bang, bang, bang,
1: bang, bang. Oh, fuck. I jump up and the people's blacked out. So I'm thinking, is this the cops or is it someone pretending to be the cops just come to rob me? Yeah. Go through to the bedroom to get Claudia and then as we're in the living room, just boom, door just flies off the hinges. Now, it's quite an interesting thing seeing a SWAT team unfold in front of you. <laughs> the rapidity of the movement mm-hmm. as they just like funnel in and like fan out. Mm-hmm. And they got like shields and protective gear. But you just get the sense that if they open fire on you right now, your life is over in seconds. Mm -hmm. And cause they're screaming at you, get the fuck on the ground now. Put your fucking hands on your head, get fucking down. You just drop like that. Because you know if you don't comply, you're going to get shot. So I was, I dropped. And they crush crushed you and handcuff you. And then the detective who was my nemesis, Detective Reed, just wrenched me up and just got in my face and he was like, basically, like, gotcha, Atwood. You're a big name from the rave scene. We know uh, this raid is going to... I think he thought I, I hadn't quit, I'd just gone Underground and got but gone even bigger, and my apartment was going to be like this Aladdin's palace of drugs. So when they couldn't find any drugs, mm-hmm. and all the code vendors didn't have any drugs, they were furious because <laughs> it was a multi-agency investigation at this point. The feds were there, and they must have told the feds I was big time, and the feds dropped the case. No drugs were found. None of the people who were dealing for me had anything. And um, Detective Reed's yelling at me, what's in the safe? I know your drug's in the safe. And I was about to give him the combination to the safe and he's like, I'm gonna get a fucking locksmith, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) So they just dragged me out and busted the safe open. There was nothing in the safe either. So I was still in this pipe dream world of thinking, well, if they've got no drugs, what can they do? Well, it was a conspiracy case. So all it takes is people to say they sold drugs for you or they sold drugs to you and they've got a case. Hmm. So I had to accept my karma cheerfully, which is what I did. Mm -hmm. And I tried to turn incarceration into the education opportunity of a lifetime.
0: Yeah, yeah. You said, I just want to quickly pick up on something. Yeah. When the SWAT team burst in and you know that your life could potentially be over in a split second. Yeah. What was your relationship or your perception of death at that point?
1: It got to the point where I'd gone from taking ecstasy, just to go out and dance and smile and have a good time, to being unable to replicate that. So mixing all of my drugs up, ecstasy, crystal meth, GHB, ketamine, Xanax. We called it Zek, we'd do. (laughs) Xanax, ecstasy and ketamine. They were calling us the Zek tribe for a bit. I think the media mentioned that as well. I would sometimes overdose on GHB. Okay. And I would lose consciousness and flop on the floor like a fish. Yeah, and I'd just wake up and I would have memory loss. And in these party houses where we were storing drugs and stuff, I'd instructed all my people that. When I was like that to never ever call an ambulance or anything because the cops will come out we'll all get arrested Mm -hmm. just put me in the back room watch that I don't choke on my own vomit and I'll just sleep it off because you do generally just wake up feeling relaxed from it with memory loss so that was my I'd gone from the I'd gone into the dark side of drug use where you push yourself to the brink of death
0: Mm And with, with presumably our willingness to accept that that would be a potential outcome.
1: Yes. Really? Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? It's when I look dark. back now, it's, I think
0: it's it's insane. I mean,
1: I went to one after-party with my brain in that mindset, and I just put my head through a plasterboard wall, miss just missing a nine-inch nail that would have gone right into my skull. <sighs> I don't even remember much but other than waking up covered in puke in my house Joe and my friends had took me home puke on the carpet puke on the bed and the puke has changed the color of the carpet so I call a carpet cleaner out and he's out there with specialty chemicals trying to get this stain out of the carpet and he's shaking his head he's like Sean Whatever drugs were in your system are so strong, my chemicals can't get this out your carpet. Yeah. So, years and years later, I had to ask myself what makes someone with a good education from a loving home do such dangerous drug cocktails that you push yourself to the brink of death? I mean, Wildman did the same as well. He was up for weeks on crystal meth and crack smoking them, which I never got into, fortunately. Mm. And he would get so paranoid, he would just like looking at us all and sort of thinking that people were coming to kill him. Then he would disappear for days? (laughs) And he would come back with his shoes broken and his feet bleeding. And he just walked continuously for two or three days, high on crystal meth and crack. (laughs) And sometimes, he would have a heart condition and end up hospitalized. He'd just collapse and he'd be in hospital. When he got arrested, I think they might have saved his life because um, they had to put stents in his heart. Right, okay. Yeah. And I went to visit him in the hospital one time. They had all these, the wires fixed up to him and they're monitoring his stuff. And he, he asked me for an ecstasy pill and I thought he was just gonna put it in his pocket and when he was recovered, you know, get out and get back to partying. And he just popped it right there in the hospital. It's like, what the <laughs> fuck have you just done well, man? Oh
0: my God.
1: And when it kicked in, all, of, all the machines started going, we're well, like, we better get the fuck out of here. The doctors started coming, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like your rave
2: days. <laughs>
1: so, there is inner turmoil in human beings that needs to be addressed if people want to give up their addictions. Mm-hmm. You know, I was up here doing a mm-hmm. TED Talk. My TED Talk's called, Mafia murderer saves prison activist life. But I was thinking of doing a TED Talk called How I Beat My Drug Addiction. Okay, Maybe in the future, if I get asked again, I would do that one. Because it's so sad. In prison, meeting the prisoners, and hearing the sad stories, 90% shooting up heroin. Now, why are they taking heroin? They're traumatized as kids they're thrown away, (coughs) raised in care homes, or foster homes, Mm -hmm. or young offenders prisons, where they're further traumatized from the stuff that they're escaping from, getting molested, getting physically abused, um, seeing parents die. They're trying to escape from that, and yet we put them in these institutions where they're further traumatized. Mm And they end up taking the hardest core drugs so they're not feeling the pain. It's self-medication. And then as adults, they're street medicating, they're violating the laws to get this. So then we put them in prison where they're further traumatized again, treated like animals.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. And the whole day revolves around just getting the heroin and getting high. So until society addresses that root cause of their trauma, Mm -hmm. they're not going to fix those people because Two thirds of them had Hepatitis C, which was slowly killing them. Yellow John, their skin and teeth rotting out. And they knew it was killing them, but they're so traumatized, they would choosing to commit this slow suicide
0: and just die. It's an absolute tragedy for society. So, uh, you know, given this, this sort of system, so to speak, as a whole, yeah. where a child goes into traditional education and then maybe, you know, college, job, etc., at what point should they be intercepted, for the want of a better word, in order to correct the underlying issues, do you think?
1: Most people that you described have a dabble with drugs and go on to completely live normal lives. Mm -hmm. There are people that have addictive tendencies. I will give an example as Russell Brand, Mm -hmm. who will completely self-destruct and push them to the point where they could potentially die Mm -hmm. from the drugs that they're taking. They're the people that need to be identified so that they can be taught to steer that energy into positive addictions. Mm -hmm. And they can be taught how to go deep inside themselves and address the root causes of why they're taking drugs in the first place. And yoga and meditation, and therapy, and reading over a thousand books in just under six years, they're all the things that helped me do that.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, are you able to summarize in one sentence as to what you think the underlying issue was with yourself? (laughs) Okay, I was diagnosed with social anxiety. Okay. And
1: as a teenager, I don't want to make excuses now for my crimes, but no, no, from a psychological perspective, yeah. it was important for me to to, to mm-hmm. rehabilitate, to analyze this. Mm-hmm. So, I was one of the last to grow in my year group in high school. There was a period of time when the rugby players used to beat the shit out of me and stuff like that because I was small. It got to the point where I was hiding out in the technical drawing room. I was so scared to go out on the break. Then. When I finally crossed over to six form, and I started growing, and I was beginning to, to you know, to get, feel a, the comf- some confidence coming back, I just passed my driver's license test, and I went to fill up my mum's little red car with petrol, and four drunks, rugby player-sized guys in their 20s, almost beat me to death, kicking me in the head and hitting me head of an iron bar, knocking pieces of my teeth out. Jeez. So that set me back again then. I wouldn't go out and dance, I wouldn't go out and talk to women, too self-conscious, and... Like I said at the beginning of this interview, I was, I was taking the ecstasy then, and all that just completely melted away. I was transformed into this party animal. Mm-hmm. But for over 10 years, like you quoted, I am thinking I'm not interested in enough person to be around now unless I'm high. And that's why I feel so privileged now, because I'm sober. And people all over the world seem to be getting even more interested in my story. <laughs> people are coming out to my, my talks to adults at the clubs and stuff across the country. And um, I feel really privileged that people
0: are fascinated by me, just a normal lad from WITNESS. (laughs) I mean, your story is incredible. (laughs) I I mean, you you know, upon reflection, do you actually think that there was uh, validity in that, that you weren't interesting?
1: When you're a teenager, it goes through your mind, your status amongst your peer group, Mm -hmm. what you're wearing, what your friends are thinking of you, whether you're cool or not. Mm -hmm. I think the pressure in those years is so immense that something I can look back on now as an adult and would just be water off my back.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And I can say to myself, that's insane that I would take that little thing and blow it disproportionately. But when you're a teenager, these things are what what determine your personal happiness because that's how you frame your life. Am I wearing the right clothes? Am I gonna be considered uh, cool? You know, can I go up and dance to this kind of music? Am I gonna get a girlfriend, are
0: they gonna laugh at me if I try and dance, if I'm wearing the wrong clothes? Yeah.
1: All these things are going through your head. It's acceptance, isn't it, in your peer group?
0: Yeah, I guess you're, you're seeking e- external validation. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. But going through everything that I've gone through in life,
1: especially incarceration, I had a social anxiety. But now I'm being forced sober to live with people, some of whom are maniacs in order to cross the road to avoid. Mm-hmm. And I'm in a cell with a you know, with like a serial home torture who's threatening me day in, day out. So the therapist said if you're afraid of something, flying, spiders, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you've got to confront that fear head on to overcome it. So I was forced, an invisible hand picked me up, social anxiety, drug user, and put me in an environment where for six years I was sober and living around people, some of whom were maniacs. Then you get out, you're released into normal society, which then the world seems
0: like a completely safe place. Yeah, yeah. See, so social anxiety is gone. <laughs> uh, so. so I was going to ask you, what were the biggest positives that came out of the experience of being in prison around people who, you know, well, basically every circumstance, dead rats in the food, cockroach infestation, concrete oven temperatures, gang mayhem and violence. That's such an extreme circumstance. Um, what would be the upside of that
1: for you? The therapist said to me, Sean, dealing with the thugs in here... Is going to give you a skill set that's going to last you for the rest of your life. So things that I would have taken personally, I don't take personally. Things that I would have been afraid of, I'm no longer afraid of. And I can get out and be around people and enjoy talking to people and not think I'm not interested anymore. And it becomes a very pleasant experience getting out on the road, meeting all these people and they're so interested in asking me all these questions. It's completely transformed my life.
0: Which is just so bizarre, <laughs> you know? Well, that you can find light in the darkness, I suppose, is one way of all well, the whole of metaphor. incarceration saved my life. That SWAT
1: team, the prosecutor, people I hated at the moment. Mm-hmm. I credit all them now with saving my life, taking me out of that dangerous lifestyle. Because even though I'd quit the importation, I couldn't quit my addiction because they're not addressed the root causes. Mm-hmm. I was leaving my girlfriend at home on the weekends and going out with wild Wildman and my friends getting high still. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: To what extent do you care um, what others think about you now?
2: Okay.
1: <coughs> That's a very interesting question because I recently had a big situation on my YouTube channel. Yeah. <laughs> Got to phrase this very carefully to not resurrect <laughs> the negative forces. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they'll, just, uh, they'll just be on my channel now. <laughs>
1: Thanks, mate. <laughs> it could possibly cross pollinate your channel. This is, this is a liability. <laughs> L- live going by there. the sword,
0: die by the sword, Sean.
1: Another <laughs> podcaster, a female comedian, recently asked me about the situation, and she started to get some of the negative comments and the skeptical people uh, being abusive towards her. So let me run it down. I had my YouTube channel for 10 years. My dad actually started it for me when I was in prison. No, sorry, he started it for himself. Okay. <laughs> I hijacked it. The first video on my YouTube channel, I think, is my dad in Tenerife in a queen cover band. Yes. He's not Freddie Mercury, he's the guitarist. And that video is still on my channel. My channel's Derek at D E R I C K at. So. <laughs> Got this YouTube channel for 10 years before I went on True Geordie. I did put the odd video on it every now and then. Sky News appearance, How to Survive Sheriff Joe Power's Jail was put on years ago. But I'm an author, so all I was interested in was putting my work out as written content. Didn't see any, I had no motivation at all to start putting out video stuff. Mm -hmm. Went on True Geordie. Thanks again, Brian (laughs) and Lawrence. the subscribers started to jump.
0: So what, what would you, what would the subscriber count roughly have been at the, before that? That was 2016, I think. I had virtually no subscribers at
1: all. Really? I did some activism for Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey making yeah. The Murderer. Mm-hmm. That caused a jump, the first jump. Okay. But, but True Jody caused a much bigger jump. So now all of a sudden I've got like 10,000 subscribers or something out of nowhere. And it's not stopping. Every day I'm getting hundreds of subscribers. Ever since, to this, to this day, it's still not stopped. So to the point where I'm almost at 200,000, so here's what happens now. So now all these people are putting comments on YouTube, which became an obsession of mine. Like, first thing in the morning, after breakfast is just start reading the YouTube comments. <laughs> and I'm asking these subscribers and commenters, what would you like to see on the channel? Because this is new to me. Mm-hmm. And they're saying prison stories, More prisoners, their stories. Start your own podcast. And I'm thinking, I start looking around other podcasts that I listen to, like Joe Rogan. And that's a lot of work to be doing a podcast, but you know, I've got this manic energy. I've got a passion. I mean, my mission was, when I got released, was to keep the stories going of the other prisoners I left behind, because the blog became a bridge to the outside world. They were getting pen pals and books. And they all took me to the side and asked me to keep it going for them. Mm. Most prisoners, when they're getting released, they say, I'm gonna get a job, I'm gonna send you some money, I'm gonna send you some books to read. And you don't hear from them again until six months le- later when they're re-arrested for drugs and they're right back inside, it's so sad. Yeah. So I promised on my heart to my prison friends I would keep all this the activism going for them and keep helping them. And so getting their stories on the YouTube channel was one big thing for me. T-Bone has become very popular. He's the big black Marine guy who uses his skills as a US Marine to stop prison rape. And actually tonight, a guy who donated a grand to T-Bone, my friend Raj out of Edinburgh, who I've not even met yet, he's gonna be giving me a tour of Edinburgh. So big shout out and big thank you to my friend Raj. T-Bone's daughter sadly died Mm -hmm. at the end of last year in her 20s. Pneumonia, I think it was. Um, so the money that's been coming in from these donations has been helping not just T Bone but his family. Some of it went to help the funeral costs, and um, he's got a bunch of kids and his wife, and they've not got that much money. So it's really the kindness of these people from around the world is amazing. I, I, I thank them as well. So back to your question, then um, I did decide to start the podcast because there's so many. There's, my point here is there's so many, there's so many times I can tell my story. Um, even though there's 30 plus hours of audiobook content, I, I want to bring in fresh stories for the YouTube subs. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking now, there's all these other amazing stories out there, people who've been to prison, all these prisons around the world, prisoners in Dubai, prisoners in Kuwait. These are some of the latest ones I've got going up. And um, the first podcast was triggered by a prison charity who asked me to help a guy who'd done 34 years in California prison for a crime he hadn't committed. So I met Jamie Morgan Cain. Mm-hmm. Um, very charming, great speaker. The story just blew my mind. Now, it is verified that this guy's done 34 years in the California prison system. And that's what I was interested in, was his prison stories. Mm-hmm. And the first podcast was about three and a half years. But he did mention some of his military stuff. Oh my goodness. That was what led to the situation of me now. Your your original question was reacting to things. Because there was a massive backlash against Jamie Morgan Cain's claims about his military claims were not that he was not in the military. Another big YouTuber who's got a 100% track record outing people who either embellish military service or claim to be military personnel who have not. So when people started to tell me this guy was looking at Jamie, I had no idea who this guy was. And when he put a video out, I was quite shocked that It was so incendiary against Mm. myself. I'm on this mission to help people. Mm -hmm. But he basically said, I was a piece of shit, ex con, in a conspiracy with Jamie to defraud the public out of money. That was just one of the claims, yeah. Now, this is hitting your question on the head now at this point, because Mm. as an immature person before prison, if I'd have saw that, Mm-hmm. My reaction, emotional, mm-hmm. would have been to strike back, you know, right away and to take it very personally indeed. Mm-hmm. And it would have created a big, messy situation. Thank God I didn't do anything like that. It taught me, in the early stages of this process, it took me a few weeks to kind of look into it and come to understand what this guy was about. Now in America, you've got 20 soldiers a day committing suicide. Most of my friends in prison were soldiers. T-Bone, Frankie, two Tonys. And I heard their stories and my opinion is the military is a double-edged sword you've got a lot of well-meaning people that want to defend their countries and do the patriotic thing but then you've also got machiavellian politicians like bush Mm. and blur and some of the guys i spoke to were sent off to certain countries to do things that they didn't necessarily agree with but they felt it was their duty. And they came back traumatized from what they'd seen, what they'd done. They'd seen the fellow soldiers get blown up by IEDs and they had PTSD. And they come back to America and got on the street drugs because the government wasn't offering them the aftercare that they needed. Mm-hmm. It's so sad that these Machiavellian politicians send people off to do certain things, yet the structure isn't there for these people when they get back, and my heart goes out to them, hearing those stories myself in prison. Mm -hmm. So when I researched what this YouTuber was about, I um, sent a message by email saying I respected what he did, and I would investigate the situation, and the people who, support this guy, because he had a couple hundred thousand subscribers at the time. Because Jamie Morgan Cain didn't have any internet presence, Mm -hmm. they went after myself. They did take the YouTuber's video at face value that I was a piece of shit ex-con looking to scam the public, because I set a donation page up for Jamie. It wasn't even his idea. Mm -hmm. My heart was going out to him. The prison charity had told me what he'd been through and I wanted to help this guy try and rebuild his life. Mm -hmm. Um, After prison show, they had a guy called Danny, who'd done about 40 years, I think. And they set up a donation page for him and he was able to travel around and help get a place and help get back in the working world. And he's just recently got married and helped rebuild his life. So I thought I was doing a good deed. Mm -hmm. But the guys, the skeptics, let's call them, They then launched this massive attack on me, where I was doxxed and dogpiled, and all my personal information was put online. My phone number that I had for 10 years that all the schools would contact me on was completely lost, because I was getting so many crank calls and death threats. My websites were all taken down, all of the resources I had for the schools, the drugs education, The activism websites I had paid for, Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey to help people support them and write to them and send them things in prison were all gone. I had to get a lawyer. I had to um, pay for increased security. And um, it really set my podcast goal back for several months Mm -hmm. because I was hoping to get to the point where I was gonna be releasing one podcast a week. For about a month, I was just dealing with the Jamie Morgan Kane situation. I couldn't even think about doing anything. I've only just got back on track now of being able to do a podcast a week. People were saying my credibility was shot. I'd had this guy on. Now my pledge to the skeptics and to the YouTuber who'd accused him of these things was that I would have this investigated independently and there is an independent entity in London now that has a legal department. And these guys have got multi-millions capitalization
3: mm-hmm.
1: that can get to the bottom. of This is something that I can't do. I'm just a little guy with my resources, trying to get my story and the stories of other people out there to the mm-hmm. world.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, Jamie Morgan Cain has submitted 60, Documents to these this entity, Okay. and this is not a quick process. People are saying because I've not done this fast enough. I'm in on it with him. I'm, I'm you know all this all this stuff. Legal anything to do with legal it takes. If you're a publisher, for example, I'm an author. Random House is my publisher. Submitting my books to them. I think my book's just going to be on the shelves next week. Their legal department goes over the entire book, and it could take a year for them to investigate it and demand paperwork and to research that paperwork. And they tell you what parts of your book you've got to get changed and what, um, what names you've got to change and all that. And really? some people call me out of my stories because I've changed names on YouTube versus what they've read oh in my, my books. God. So legal entities take months and months and months to delve into these stories and, and make sure everything's authenticated. Mm-hmm. And when the results are out from this investigation, then I will do a YouTube video about that. And that's, yeah. what What more can I do in this situation? Yeah, yeah. Some people say, my credibility is shot now. They never watched any of my podcasts because yeah. all my guests are just liars and fakers and I'm <sighs> in on it with them. Now, your question is, do I react to this stuff? Well, yeah. This like, is a big, long-winded <laughs> thing, but... Because of prison, I've learned that, you know, in prison, people are calling each other names all day long. And the people who react the most to the names huh. are the ones that get picked on the most. Mm-hmm. So I've got to admit that we're all human and I did have an initial emotional reaction. I mean, when you wake up one day and all your websites are gone and all your information is online and you're getting death threats on your phone and people are calling all your speaking venues and trying to get your talks canceled. And you're getting people contacting you and you, now you've got to deal with, read all your passwords, all your accounts are trying to get hacked and you've got to reset all your passwords and you've got to do the double, what's it called? The double um, authentication oh, when you yeah, log into yeah, things. yeah, and, you do, you, and this is going on for, for, for weeks. <laughs> it's hard not to have an emotional reaction to that situation. Yeah. So I am I'm thinking the whole family's having an emotional reaction to this situation this is causing us grave concern mm-hmm. um, but now that i've calmed down and looked at it in a cooler light mm-hmm. and i think i've handled it and done everything i can to address these claims to the best of my professional ability mm-hmm. the people are still coming in accusing us of things um i have students now who are moderators on my youtube channel i fully believe in freedom of speech Hmm. but it got it gets so sick to a point where moderators are now on my youtube channel and some people have been blocked and some comments have been deleted and i never ever wanted to get in a situation where i'd have to do that Mm -hmm. But it's causing upset to my family i'm i'm tough now from prison i can handle this it's causing upset to my family and it's causing upset to the family members and friends of my podcast guests Jamie Morgan Cain's videos now, all comments are disabled. Yeah,
0: I had I had that down um, in my sort of questions to, well, clearly it goes deeper than just troll posts. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's not just... Uh, and I completely
1: respect and understand the issue of stolen valour. Mm. My podcast is not even about military stories. It's a prison podcast. Mm-hmm. But because of the issue is so serious and Jamie mentioned military stuff, mm-hmm. I've had to handle this appropriately.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm not lashing back at the people who are attacking me and I'm, I'm getting seriously attacked.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I could have referred this over to Wildman to <laughs> combat, not the guy who instig- instigated the people coming after me with these incendiary videos, but the troll people, not the skeptics, the skeptics and trolls. I could have sent Wildman, and him on, the, on YouTube, you know, attacking all these trolls. Mm-hmm. But I'm not about that. Why engage with this negativity? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's childish. If you're focused on success, this becomes a drain of your mental energy and your financial resources. I mean, what is in it for the future of my activism and my channel yeah. by engaging with these people? It's just a waste of my day. Yeah. But the ones who have raised serious issues, I've tried to say to those people, I'm taking you seriously and here's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Don't want to lose people who are loyal followers who now think I'm in on
0: on some kind of conspiracy to do fraud the public. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's an interesting point um, because obviously from my perspective, I have guests on my show and I, I possibly overthink having certain people on. But I mean, do you think that having somebody on your podcast as a guest is an implicit endorsement of that individual?
1: No, but people watching my videos do think that is an implicit endorsement of that individual. Yeah. I am a platform. Obviously, I like these people's stories. Mm-hmm. And they bring me their paperwork, or oh, a lot of them have got books out, and they're a lot more diligent now. And I do whatever I can to authenticate. But at the end of the day, these are all people living their own individual lives that can make their own individual choices. And they could go out and perhaps commit another heinous crime mm-hmm. that I've got nothing to do with. That, that could potentially happen. Mm-hmm. Or the reverse could happen, we saw with James English in his podcast, he had a podcast guest on. And a week later his podcast guest got murdered. Mm-hmm. So I have no control over other people's lives. I am here to bring stories out to the public and they can like them, they can dislike them. I don't mind negative comments. And in fact, I see it as a sign of success. <laughs> Since the Jamie Morgan Kane stuff, My channel's died down quite a bit. (laughs) But I have noticed some of the skeptics and trolls' comments of that ilk coming in recently. And I'm thankful for that. (laughs) Really? I think this is going to help my channel start to come back up again. (laughs) This is a sign. Because Uh, when things get big on YouTube, these people are prevalent. Without without them, I'm at a loss. Come back. But not be completely evil (laughs) and scare people and family members and issue death threats. Don't go to that level, but please come back and say negative things. (laughs) Because I am for free speech and the internet, that's how society progresses when you've got all these different kinds of viewpoints. Mm -hmm. And I've learned a lot from this situation. I've learned a lot from the people with the negative comments. And that's helped me steer my channel as well. Mm -hmm. But it's my family members and the family members of guests who've got scared and intimidated by this stuff is why moderators have had to be brought in. Yeah, that's the I'm um, for free speech, it doesn't bother me. I, I've been to prison, I've heard things much worse. I mm-hmm. thought <laughs> from keyboard warriors. Yeah, yeah. From people who could slit my throat and pop my eyeballs out. So I lived with a serial home invader torturer who was threatening to cave my skull in with a padlock in his sock. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> some Reddit kid on YouTube saying he's gonna come to one of my talks and do something. You know, killers don't leave evidence online. That's not (laughs) how professional killers operate.
0: What do you think motivates trolls on YouTube and Reddit?
1: There is something in human nature that is good, and there is something in human nature that is bad. And we all have it in us. And this is the internet equivalent of a lynch mob now, the troll mob, and if you can just say to some something to someone from a keyboard and they can't even see who you are, suddenly you've got the brave heart of a mountain lion. But if they saw you in public, you would have the heart of a pissant. You would even dare to say something to someone's face like that. Mm-hmm. I guarantee 99.9% of these trolls, maybe even 100, would not go to Wild Man's house <laughs> and say anything to his face. Mm -hmm. And while I'm on some of his videos, he says, I stay up at night waiting for people to come to my house. Here's where I live. Puts his address (laughs) on the videos. (laughs) 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 So I read John Ronson's book on shame. You're being publicly shamed, have you read it? I've not, no. John Ronson is a fantastic author. He's done a few TED Talks. I highly recommend his works. And he does analyze the psychology of shaming in his book. And he just says, because there's no repercussions for them. Mm -hmm. These mobs form instantly. And the intensity of it is such that there was, um, one of the examples he gives in his book was the lady who, she said she was going to Africa. I think she was a PR person in a New York company and she joked about not catching AIDS or something, which was a sick joke. Mm. Within the parameters of her Twitter followers though, it was kind of a weird wavelength that they were making jokes on. By the time her flight landed in Africa, millions of people had seen this. There was a website set up that was tracking her flight. She'd lost her job and uh, her life was never the same. So there is an ability through this technology now to form these lynch mobs of millions of people who, their psychology is they temporarily become insane because look at the the psychology of crowds. When I was a teenager, I read Le Bon, The Crowd. I read Extraordinary, Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And people who ask me about stock market books, I recommend they read these books. Mm. If you're in a crowd, you're not thinking and you're not behaving as you are as an individual. Your individual psychology is out of the window. Hmm. And that's why the stock market goes to extremes mm-hmm. of overbought and oversold and it crashes. Stock market is the place where everything's on sale. Everyone's running the opposite direction <laughs> because of this psychological insanity. Yeah, But that is in all of us and it's reflected in the internet, but the internet now allows a lynch mob to become multi-million group worldwide. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Why is it you think that the uh, Jamie Morgan Kane video became the most popular v- uh, video on your channel? What what made that one viral? Okay, I
1: was looking today at the analysis of my YouTube subscribers yeah. and the breakdown of who's watching the podcast. Mm-hmm. So in the very beginning, my YouTube was a majority American audience, and I think Jamie Morgan Kane's. I looked at it today; it was about sixty percent American audience. Well, I looked at some of the more recent podcasts that are getting up to like 100,000 views, and um, the UK audience now was up to about 60,000. So the okay. audience for the podcast seems to have changed. Now, Jamie Morgan Gain, 34 years for a crime he hadn't committed, the intensity of his prison experience, those stories were so gripping, were so well told, The Americans can understand him. I've had some (laughs) Scottish guests on the podcast that the Americans can't understand.
0: (laughs) But one of them sat in that chair, (laughs) Blink McDonald. Yes, Blink,
1: shout out to Blink, (laughs) shout out to Johnny Boy Steele. And uh, great guys. Um, I think all the ingredients were there for this to go viral. Jamie said that when he came in, there was some big name serial killers like um, Kemper,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Edmund Kemper. Yeah, Kemper yeah. yeah,
1: he's that TV show. He's part one of that TV show. Kemper wasn't he?
0: Uh, Mind Hunter. Yeah, which yeah. Has created a lot of interest in
1: Kemper. Mm-hmm. Manson, one of Manson's executioners, and there was one more serial killer, and then his battles against the Aryan Brotherhood was so gripping as well because. The most gripping story, which is close to getting four million views right now, is what if a shot caller puts a green light on you in Folsom Prison, California? Mm -hmm. I think it's about a 35, 40 minute clip. And even today, it's the most, I woke up this morning, it's the most watched thing on the channel. Mm -hmm. Um, His American accent, everything, Mm. just made it understandable worldwide. Mm. So,
0: yeah. Just hit the sweet spot.
1: Hit the sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah,
0: <clears throat> I asked you this yesterday, but I'm interested to um, hear your thoughts. Do you create content that you want to create and that you're passionate about, or are you creating content that you think will get the most hits views? Both. Yeah,
1: because I've got a guy on my channel right now, John Abbott, and he was in the California system slightly below before um, Jamie Morgan Kane shoot out to the police, his brother died, and all this stuff, crazy story. So he's in there and he's meeting Kemper and he's got interaction to the Aaron Brotherhood. It's very similar. And I think that um, that one and the David MacMillan series have got the potential to go the biggest next presently, yeah. Mm. So as a businessman, I want my channel to be big. Mm -hmm. No qualms about that. The bigger it gets, the more all of the stories are watched. The activism is increased. The message is out there about the horrors of not just the US prison system, prisons all over the world. I'm getting kids all over the world writing to me now saying, watching your YouTube channel is the biggest thing putting me off drugs and crime right now. I'm on a mission in the school speaking to hundreds of thousands of school kids now Mm -hmm. to not have them go down the path that I went down. So as well as helping the prisoners, Mm -hmm. my other mission is to save these school kids from getting involved in drugs Mm -hmm. and crime and doing the crazy shit I did. Nothing wrong with doing things as a mature adult. Adults shouldn't be told what they can and cannot do by the government, it's moral relativism. Mm -hmm. But kids, when their brains are developing and they're immature, at high
0: risk when they get into that drugs lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you a bit about prisoners' rights, Sean. Um, I know this is a, something clearly you're very passionate about. Yeah. Um, what are your views around um, prisoners' rights? And, and just to expand on that, maybe around things like, do you think that when somebody commits a terrible crime that they, they really give up the right to have rights, <laughs> like voting and uh, etc.?
1: What's your definition of crime? Now, let's go back thousands of years. Yeah. Person A kills person B. Person A rapes person B. Person A steals a horse from person B.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Society needs to be protected from people who are harming other people, including people like me, drug importers on a mass scale. I'm not making excuses for what I did. When I got into prison, I saw the vast majority of prisoners were low level drug users, biggest arrest category back then in the history of criminal justice, one of the biggest arrest categories, weed possession. Hundreds of thousands of people a year in America getting arrested for weed possession. Mm. So black kids and Mexican kids, joints of weed getting two to five years. Oh, in Arizona, they love arresting Mexicans and Mexican Americans. Mm So. I had to readdress what I thought a prisoner was. Mm-hmm. The media led me to believe it was going to be full of Hannibal Lecters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a kid with weed hurting Yeah. themselves. Mm-hmm. So what rights should we give these people? Should we give all prisoners the same rights? No. Big time drug traffickers, murderers, rapists, paedophiles, Mm -hmm. serial killers. Mm -hmm. It needs to be addressed differently, especially murderers and paedophiles. Society needs to be protected from these people. They should lose more rights. Yeah. Young people in for weed convictions. Mm. They shouldn't even be in the first place. They should have all the rights reinstated. Those people in America right now are serving 25 to life on the three strikes laws for weed possession. They should be released immediately. Apologies should be given by the government mm-hmm. and they should have all of their rights reinstated. But no, there's still states right now. There's a video on YouTube that's going viral, a Vice Magazine video. It shows a baby faced undercover cop going into a school. He gives $20 to an autistic kid and t- tells him to go and buy some weed. Mm. At the end of the investigation, 20 plus kids are arrested, half of them special needs and the rest of them racial minorities. And the news headline is, dangerous drug gang specializing in heroin and crack, dealing drugs to school kids.
0: Honestly. This is
1: what the police are up to in America. Mm-hmm. Makes me sick. Mm-hmm. And Vice exposed the reason they, they're doing this as a financial incentive by arresting the easiest people in society to arrest, kids with drugs. They fulfill the arrest quotas and get more federal funding from the US government to fight the war on drugs because the US government has got weed as a schedule one substance. (laughs) The people of America need to rise up and demand weed all over the entire country, get legalized, decriminalized, and to no longer be a schedule one substance. universities and medical institutions all over America can start properly researching the medicinal properties. Mm-hmm. And all these kids with comas that these politicians have deprived from the medicine that have gone into comas and died because they're having the seizures. Mm-hmm. Those evil scum politicians protecting corporate interests. These kids need their medicine and it should be fully researched and they shouldn't be having problems. It makes me sick. I was in Holland last week researching because I'm writing a book, The War Against Weed, and I'm writing another book, We Are Being Lied To, The War on Drugs, to expose all this stuff. And I was Mm -hmm. at the Hemp Museum, and it showed everything I'd been researching about Harry Anslinger, the drug czar. It was all the corporations that didn't want the competitor industries. They they wanted weed demonized, and they steeped it in racism. And when I got back, my mum said, some woman had just tried to come back into England from Holland with all this medicine, she spent over 10,000 pounds, I think she said, on this medicine for her sick kid. And they stopped her coming back into the country and taking all the medicine from her. And that absolutely breaks my fucking heart. Yeah. The evil bastard politicians, and the police shouldn't be putting this into action, stopping a, a mum yeah. from giving her kid this medicine. Mm-hmm. I take Charlotte's Web CBD oil, and Charlotte's Web in America, they they, they did a strain of the CBD oil that was very low THC, so it's not got the psychoactive substance in it, so it will be legal, it is legalized, mm-hmm. very expensive still. But there are people out there who've un- can- got cancer who need the THC for that yeah. two-step punch from the CBD and the THC mm-hmm. to get that cancer in remission. But um, they're having to buy it on the black market. It makes me sick. Mm-hmm. I completely yeah. agree. If you go back to the earliest laws about weed, it was the pharmaceutical societies of California who didn't want people growing free medicine in their backyard. Mm -hmm. And Queen Victoria, her doctor had said, this is the most medicinal medicinal plant on the planet. Mm -hmm. And if you go back thousands of years and look at these ancient Chinese and Sumerian and Egyptian uh, stones and writings, it shows how they were using it in medicine back then. Yeah. So it's the, it's the pharmaceutical societies evolved into the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. And now if you look at a partnership for a drug-free America, out these ads saying, if you smoke weed, you're going to grab an axe and kill your granny. They're financed by pharma and alcohol and tobacco. who don't want the competition still exactly. to this day. The government's yeah. going along with it. Mm-hmm. Governments all over the world are going along with it. Mm. There's still people wanting to tighten drug laws and put more kids in prison for these offenses. <laughs> yeah. For, for primarily financial gain. For financial gain, it's yeah. a multi-billion dollar. Locking kids up is a multi-billion dollar industry. When I started my blog, it was started in the prison, a woman wrote to me out of Pennsylvania, and her son was a, a victim of the kids for cash scheme. Mm-hmm. Judges have been arrested in America now Sentencing kids to prisons just so they can get cash back from the private prisons.
0: Jesus. Unreal. That's
1: where it's got to, and we're introducing that in this country. Yeah. Why aren't we introducing the Scandinavian model? It's got the lowest crime and reoffending yeah, in the world. Exactly. Because you don't make money from rehabilitating people.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> They've took it out the hands of the politicians in some of those countries, so it's not vote dependent. Yeah. Yeah. We should be doing that here.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. My, my next topic actually and is... And they allow prisoners to vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was, my next heading is rehabilitation and reoffending, but just before that, views on the death penalty. So I was for the death
1: penalty until I got in prison. Someone kills my family in cold blood, I want to see that person die. Got in prison, saw the corruption, and the thing that opened my eyes to the corruption was Alan Simpson, my lawyer, getting Ray Crown, the snaggletooth killer, off death row in Arizona. Waitress found dead at a bar. Ray, a postman, had been at the bar. Bite mark found, DNA found. They arrest Ray. Bite mark doesn't match, DNA doesn't match. What does the state of Arizona do? Suppress the DNA and pay an expert witness $50,000 to say his teeth match the bite mark when they know it doesn't. It's so common in America now it's called testy lying. They give Ray $5,000 to defend himself. They're paying expert witnesses 50,000 a pop. So they're spending millions prosecuting Ray. Now from going in court myself, I know that court is not about justice or facts or rationality. Mm-hmm. It's complete and utter theater. <laughs> Prosecutor paid, portrayed me to be the antichrist. Mm-hmm. My lawyer portrayed me to be a saint, a child protege stock trading saint. Neither of which are reality. I'm looking at one, looking at the other, thinking, can I say something? I'm never allowed to speak. It's just a theater act. Ray's got 5,000 for his theater production. State of Arizona's got multi-millions. Who's gonna win? (laughs) Ray was found guilty. He'd been with his mom at the time of the crime. His mom had a heart attack in the courtroom when she heard this verdict come down. Mm -hmm. He's on death row for over 10 years, within hours of getting executed, multiple times, stay of execution. I was completely not guilty of my crimes. I deserve my punishment. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine the torment of being an innocent person. Because if you protest you're innocent in the Arizona prison system and in the in justice system all over the world, if you protest your innocence and you've been found guilty, you're not showing remorse now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You're going to get the hardest, roughest ride possible. Mm-hmm. You're a remorseless killer of a woman at a bar. I'm going to super aggravate your sentence. No, you're going to get the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine what that must be like psychologically? Exactly. I don't know how Ray's saying so. My lawyer sued the state of Arizona to release the DNA. There's hundreds of guys right now trying to get the DNA released and the the states won't do it. Because if they get found innocent, Mm -hmm. they have to pay them compensation. Mm -hmm. The guys who's made their careers on those cases, their their careers unwind. Some of them have gone to become judges and politicians themselves. Mm. (laughs) So there is a conspiracy to execute these people as fast as possible, rather than all this to unwind. Who are the bigger criminals? Who are the bigger killers? Mm -hmm. These people in the justice system. Mm -hmm. My lawyer forced the state of Arizona to release the DNA. It was run through a crime lab. It matched a predator who was in the prison system and he confessed to the crime. It could have been solved that easily. Yeah, so these state-sanctioned murderers protected this guy. Mm-hmm. Look at Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. It was that, literally that, just about that. Still out there? The yeah. killer's still out there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's sad though. Ray, Ray used some, uses some of his money now to help these guys get the DNA tests. And I think it's called One for Ten some young people out of London have gone all over America and done short videos on YouTube Mm -hmm. interviewing exonerees. And I highly recommend, Ray's was one of the interviews, multiple cases of this, this is not an extrapolation. Yeah, yeah. They estimate up to a third of people on death row in America may be innocent. (laughs) They usually get a black guy with some criminal history, he doesn't stand a chance, and then they'll fry him in the electric chair right before the governor is up before election to appear to be tough on crime.
0: i mean it's unbelievable when you when you break it down it really is i wouldn't believe it myself unless i was in the system yeah yeah and people have said
1: when i've said some of these things sean you're making this up you know the black lives matter it's all made up blah 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 why are you saying these things i was in the system i saw it firsthand yeah my attorney alan simpson (laughs) got ray crone off death row
0: what more do i need to say yeah precisely Precisely. We'll get to the rehabilitation, but I just, you, you mentioned um, Stephen Avery and Brendan yeah. Nassi making a murder. I actually saw recently that Stephen Avery has another appeal coming up. Do you think either of them will ever get out?
1: I was asked that question when the I put these videos up after Making a Murder came out, mm-hmm. season one, mm-hmm. telling people how to write to Stephen Avery and how to send them things, because you can't just put things in the mail. A lot of letters got sent back because they didn't put Stephen Avery's prison number on the envelope. Oh, right. So there's all these rules you must follow if you're sending things to prisoners. And I urge people to send things to prisoners because receiving mail is like gold. Mm-hmm. The guys have stood around the guard tower looking at the mail call and the mail pile, and if they don't get anything, they've got this, this sad look about them. And I, was, I thank all the people who had written to me while I was in prison. It was like the spirit of you guys was there with me. I really appreciate that. Mm. Um, I said from the very early stages that it would take five to 10 years to get them out because they're quick to put you in and convict you. Mm -hmm. But if you're innocent, the system is designed for you to have a really excruciating time trying to get that overturned, and Mm -hmm. it takes years. Mm -hmm. Brendan Dassey had a chance with um, some of the judges but it was ruled against him. And Kathleen Zellner, Avery's attorney, said Mm -hmm. she felt that things could have been presented a bit differently. It's said and done now. Kathleen Zellner, if you've watched her on the season two, yeah. she is methodical and she has got the most people exonerated ever mm-hmm. in America. She will get Stephen Avery out one way or the other. You think so? Yeah, and I think that the ripple effect will get Dassey out as well, one way or the other, because leaving that kid in there who was told, confess to this crime, and we'll let you go home and watch WrestleMania. Yeah, It's one of the sickest things I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. They had no physical evidence at all on Dassey, other than his confession is the only evidence against him. Yeah, And when you look at the interrogation, there's a part where they say to him, because they've changed the scene several times, but they say to him, what did you do to her head? And they want him to say, shot her in the head, but he doesn't mm-hmm. know this. So he mm-hmm. says, we cut her? <laughs> it's like, no, Brendan, that's not the correct answer. What did you do to her Oh we, you know, we slapped her, we punched her, we cut her, all this stuff. Yeah. And in the end he goes, no, Brendan, you didn't do any of those things to uh, her. Just tell us who shot her in the head, Brendan, who shot her? Oh, Stephen did. So then at trial, Brendan Dassey confessed that Stephen mm-hmm. shot her in the head. That's not the words of the police. That's not how they tell it at trial. They say Steve, uh, Brendan has confessed to the crime. It's sick. It is. To take a kid and do that, that's child abuse. And the cops yeah. should be put in prison. And one of the reasons this is reoccurring is because the cops and the prosecutors, and Zell has done a good talk on this, have absolute immunity from their own crimes. They can commit judicial fraud and all these crimes, and they will never spend a day in prison. So they have every incentive just to pull every dirty trick out of the book mm-hmm. to stitch someone up. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. So people please keep writing and sending things to Stephen and Brendan and they will get out and they are completely innocent. Mm-hmm. And if you've watched the the, the episodes, you know, maybe you want to throw a TV at a wall. Yeah. Yeah. Completely.
0: Completely. Yeah. I said I would ask you about uh, rehabilitation and reoffending. I'll just try and ask this in one question to give you the best opportunity to to answer it. I was looking um, at recidivism rates and it says approximately 65, well, this is me paraphrasing, but approximately 65 to 75% of um, criminals go back into jail within three to five years. What is the existing rehabilitation process in prisons and what do you think it should be?
1: If you're a young person arrested with weed or a low-level drug offense, which is the majority of arrests what I saw, Mm -hmm. and you go into a prison where 90% are shooting up heroin and crystal meth, where you're indoctrinated into a gang that's gonna give you neo-Nazi tattoos, maybe on your swastika on your forehead, where you're gonna make your criminal connections in prison and learn to do bigger scale crimes, what chance do you have as function as a normal person when you get out? The gang knows if it puts a swastika on your head and SS lightning bolts on your neck. Are you gonna go to a job interview looking like that? Mm. The prison knows if they allow it to be drug and gang-infested mayhem, when you get out, they give you $50 gate money, say, have a nice day. Once that's gone, you're gonna come right back. So the young people have got it from both sides, pressure to reoffend.
2: Mm.
1: Again, Scandinavians, Job skills, educations, not treating people like animals, lowest crime and reoffending in the world. That is the model that we should be adopting.
0: Yeah, I like it, definitely. Mm-hmm. You credit books as being the lifeblood of your rehabilitation <laughs> <laughs> what, what What would be some of your uh you know your sort of favorite books or the staples?
1: I do get asked this
0: all the time, yeah. and I don't think I've done a full
1: exploration of this on YouTube. <laughs> okay. In the previous video, I've tried to give young people some of the books that have helped me advance in life psychologically, personal and financial success. And those books primarily, I would say, are Robert Greene books, like the 48 Laws of Power. Yeah and Mastery, Learning to master Your Own Psychology. Mm -hmm. I would also say books like classics like How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm -hmm. That was mandatory reading as a stockbroker. It was also mandatory as a stockbroker that we went to watch the Tony Robbins gig. This was back in the 90s. (laughs) So Dale Carnegie's books, the Crowd Psychology books that I mentioned books on influence and psychology, books on networking, business strategy. You know, for people who are aspiring entrepreneurs, there's so many uh, good uh, inspirational biographies out there. One of the ones I really love is the guy who founded Apple. Yeah, that's such an amazing story. Yeah. I see Branson's going against the war on drugs right now. I need to read more about Branson. Hmm. Um, It wasn't just non-fiction though, because prior to getting arrested, all I read was non-fiction. All I read was stock market books, and I've already gave, gave the names of those ones if people are interested in that, especially Stan Weinstein. Last thing I'd read was The Kill a Mockingbird required reading in high school out of fiction. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, hey, I know everything. Fiction's a waste of time. It's <laughs> gonna get in the way of my success. But reading fiction, I realized how little I did know and how much there was to learn. I went on this fantastic journey through literature, reading the classics, French classics like Madame Bovary, the Russian classics, Tolstoy, Chekhov. Dostoevsky, Solzhenitsyn. The Russians became my all-time favorite authors. Really? Reading the short stories of Anton Chekhov, whereby two peasants are getting drunk and nothing seems to happen, but you get these goosebumps on your arms and this magical feeling. It's All in the power of his prose. Mm. Tolstoy's War and Peace is one of my favorite books. And because not just is it a magnificent, storytelling ability and story arc and character development, but also the philosophy in it, and in particular the political philosophy. Mm-hmm. But in terms of life philosophy mm-hmm. and self-help and development, and in particular for people are going through hardship, the stoic philosophers, mm-hmm. so Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, mm-hmm. storm at sea is the chaos of life, but you're like the promontory, jutting into the sea, waves are crashing down on you, but you're maintaining equanimity. Epictetus, we're not disturbed by things, but by the views that we take of them. So people can troll me all day long, but according to Epictetus, they can say the worst things humanly possible, but my brain is a machine that can decide, I'm not gonna let that in. I'm gonna continue on to have a nice day. I'm not going to engage with the troll energy. And it's hard because people jump in your face and say things and you have the most reaction. But you can put a short circuit in your brain to remind yourself what Epictetus said hmm. and to walk away. My favorite philosopher was Nietzsche, mm-hmm. got absolutely obsessed, hmm. and he got a bad rap because of the Nazis. Hitler had him his books issued to the troops. But Hitler, Nietzsche wasn't around for Hitler. His sister was married to a prototype Nazi, and she changed some of his stuff a little bit to um, portray him a little bit differently than he really was. But he, you know, before he went mad, Nietzsche, one of the last things he did was he grabbed the horse and he was holding on to the horse. He had such compassion for it. Live your life like a work of art. <laughs> if your passion is interviewing people, you put a lot of effort into that, don't you? Mm-hmm. But imagine if you just put that much effort into how you live your own life, if you put that same discipline, mm. how much the standard of your living would improve. Mm. Even the rappers are quoting Nietzsche now.
2: Yeah.
1: What, would, what would Nietzsche think if he heard a rapper going, that what does not kill you makes you stronger? <laughs> <laughs> It's become such a cliche, Uh, but it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think of that quote because the therapist told me to think of it when something's stressing me out and I'm having an emotional reaction, as we all do.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: I woke up one morning, my internet was down, I was publishing a book, and I could feel my blood pressure rising because I needed to get files sent back and forth to the typesetter. And then I'm going down and checking the internet and restarting the computer and restarting the modem and all this stuff and <laughs> feel the blood pressure rising. <laughs> and then remember what the therapist said: take a step back and breathe.
2: Mm.
1: And remind yourself about the toughest things you've ever got through in your life. Wow. The Nietzschean philosophy. Hey-ho. Hey. I went six years without internet. Why the hell am I stressing myself out over this piddly shit? <laughs> and that calmed me back down. Mm-hmm. So Nietzsche, fantastic. Um, I tried to read all of the different philosophers but I had difficulty with some like Kant, okay. Critique of Pure Reason and Wittgenstein, Sartre.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But Camus, because he, he wrote novels. Yeah, Dark, but I did. Enjoy reading Absurdism Camus. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Um,
0: hmm. honestly there's just so many books. Is it just to, just to cut in there Sean? I mean yeah. wh- what would you say is your own life philosophy?
1: My life philosophy is The Miracle of Existence philosophy, right? this might sound a bit crude but if you think about the infinite improbability of your own existence Mm -hmm. how many sperm were in your father's testicles (laughs) that that one sperm managed to get to that one egg in your mother Mm -hmm. to create you but that same reaction happened in your dad's dad, yeah. and his dad, going back all the way to amphibians yeah. and to a single cell organized organism in a primordial soup. Yeah. If you yeah. go back and look at the probability
0: yeah, yeah. of
1: every single one of those reactions going back to primordial soup, yeah. you are the infinite improbability of existence. Any little thing could have happened differently and you wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. So if you accept that you are a miracle, then you, well me personally, I accept that I am a miracle. And I wake up most days with a smile on my face, happy to be alive, happy to be breathing, happy to be connecting with all these positive people all around the world right now, happy to be here speaking to you, seeing your smiley face and connecting with you. Happy to be having a, a laugh, a riot with all these podcast guests and all their interesting stories who are coming onto my channel. Mm-hmm. Happy to be reading, eating my cheese on toast breakfast, <laughs> reading these comments from all these lovely people on YouTube who are supporting what we're doing and reading some of the stuff from the trolls and the negatives yeah, yeah. That's, that's just washing off my back because I am the infinite improbability of existence. <laughs> Trolls and skeptics are not going to phase that, are they? As Joe Rogan put it on a podcast that I heard the other day, not only are we the infinite infob- inf- infinite improbability of existence, we're on, on a rock, yeah. We're on a, on a comet, on a rock, going through a universe of infinity that's just like gliding around the cosmos. <laughs> So, as well as us being the infinite in probably the existence, there's also just all this out there as well that we can't even comprehend because it's vastly against us. And I studied, within this reading, I studied all of the different religions, read all of the original texts, the religious texts, and I was fascinated by how religion and politics has shaped society over the years. Now, as a yogi, I consider myself an observer of politics and religion. I don't engage to the level that most people engage with it. And I think that in religion, some people have got such hard lives that they hope there's gonna be something for them there after they die and they endure and get on with their work and you know maybe they're a slave or maybe they're in in some kind of bad situation and it helps them get through it. And I saw the positive and I saw the negative. Mm. Like I said, there's good and bad in people, there's good and bad in every system, there's good and bad in in religion as well. Mm -hmm. But then going back to my own infinite improbability of existence belief, if you take all of the people off the earth, where is God and religion?
0: Hmm. Can you answer that? <laughs> if you take all people off the earth, where is God and religion?
1: If all the people are gone off the earth.
0: As in, if you uh, eliminate, if you wipe out humanity. If, 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 if we just yeah. didn't even exist. Yes. No, it doesn't exist with the minds of man. Yeah, so where is religion and where is God?
1: It's gone, it's gone, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's yeah, gone. Yeah. You know, people get life sentences and they come in and God and religion uh, gives them a, a, something to fall back on. And it's, it's, it can be a good thing. But if you take all the people off the world, <laughs> it's gone. So within my philosophy of the miracle of existence, I'm not gonna tell myself when I die I've got X to look forward to. I'm going to tell myself, I've got to make the most of every single second I'm alive. And I think that ties in with what Nietzsche said as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, you, you've got an uncanny knack of being able to forecast what I'm about to ask you, which is, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, I got chills when you were talking about that genuinely. And to, to have that sort of macro view of everything put so much into perspective that when you're in the daily grind, just to you know reset your frame of reference and be like, actually, I am you know a, a cell floating in infinite space. Well, I was
1: raised as a Catholic. Okay. And went to church until I was 10. And then at 10, I told my parents I didn't believe in God and didn't want to go to church anymore. But I'm not knocking religion because I see the good and bad in everything. Of course. But then when I read, all of the religious texts in prison. And in particular, I saw the structure of the Jewish ancient texts, which branched out into the Quran and into the Bible. And how all of the same characters and same stories were in all of these texts. They had different roles in different religions, but it was all the same stories and all the same characters. Mm -hmm. And to think that the human mind has taken that and people, diabolical people in leadership positions. have used that to make normal people from my background, for example, people from um, working class and lower level backgrounds and middle class backgrounds, to then just kill each other. In the names of these stories, it it just blew my mind. I thought to myself, okay, I had no idea that in the Jewish book they had these stories and then, the Christian texts and the other texts took the stories. I had no idea that that had happened, and it it blew my mind. So I thought, is there more to this? So I went and read the stories going back to the uh, ancient Egyptians and the Sumerians, now going back thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And guess what happened? The Immaculate Conception, the Flood, Hmm. the Resurrection. (laughs) All these stories predate Jewish text and predate the Christian text but they've just got different names for the characters
0: yeah
1: so this was some of the most eye-opening stuff for me mm-hmm. to ever comprehend because I was told you know Jesus was born on this date and he did all these things but for thousands of years people were getting told he did it on this date and he had
0: this name and he did this thing mm-hmm. he did the, well he did the exact same things yeah yeah. So that yeah. reminds me of um I think it's called the Zeitgeist movement. Um oh, what's them, yeah. Peter Joseph, I think the guy's name is. The which which talks about religions and how it's just they, they sort of mirror one another. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I need to ask you this question. Go for it. Um what do you think happens to you or your soul when you die?
1: To Tony's his philosophy. He said that the Bible was a hormone releasing remedy for the blues. <laughs> and he also said that he liked the philosophy of one of the atomists from ancient Greece. That's why I've called to Tony's book The Mafia Philosopher, because it starts out with him, you know, with the Banano crime family and then his mafia crew getting a war with this biker gang in Alaska. But then as he's reflecting, he's self read, self educated, and he just, develops his own philosophy, and he's... So it's a blend of these mafia, street smarts, and ancient Greece. (laughs) So this atomist, I can't even remember the guy's name, the atomist, but he said, Tuttoni said, he likes to think that his atoms just get recycled back. Yeah, yeah. Into...
0: I like that philosophy.
1: Yeah. And, you know, no one can be so... um, vain as they say, this is what happens with the soul. I know this is what happens, you know, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. So as an observer of religion, um, your answer to, to your question is really, I guess when it comes to the soul, I am 90% atheist, 9% agnostic, (laughs) and 1% thinking that my soul's going to live happily ever after (laughs) in this paradise. (laughs) 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 Because believe me, when I was facing 200 years, I was praying to God. Really? Oh yeah. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when your life is gone, when you think your life's over, you will, your mind changes and you want to you want everybody on your side, yeah. <laughs> Even yeah, if you're wrong, you want everyone on your side.
0: <laughs> but there's something about prayer and a belief in a higher power. I mean, that's very much part of the 12 steps, um, with you know all the sort of addiction um, uh, anonymous groups. You know, there is there is a, a huge power in that. Well, Russell Brand,
1: yeah, he's done remarkable mm-hmm. from the depths he was at with crack and heroin to go mm-hmm. on to be so successful. Yeah. I think he's the most, one of the most successful people in the world with addiction issues. And he swears by the 12-step program. Yeah. So yeah, there's good and bad in everything. Um, maybe even Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> those, guys, those guys killed my right-hand guy. Seriously? Yeah. Cody Bates was my right-hand guy. He would collect the cash at the peak of everything. And there was one apartment we rented just to put the cash in. He got depressed after we all got arrested. And I'd made him my head bouncer because he was always sober at the raves. Mm. So he would, if anyone had drug issues, overdosing, GHB flopping around, he would make sure they were okay, take care of them, take them home, take, drop them off a hospital if need be. But when he got released, he got depressed and went straight to heroin. Mm. His parents sent him to a Scientologist rehab they contacted someone online I think after of something and she put him into the Scientologist rehab and they put him on a antidepressant with a side effect of suicidal thoughts and he killed himself Oof. and that's online as well some people have googled that and found it online yeah and I think it was a settlement God. just watch the dark about the
0: Scientologist hmm. hmm. You mentioned a little bit earlier um, being a yogi. Um, Tell me a bit about your spiritual practices, whether it be yoga, meditation, anything else?
1: The things that helped me maintain my sanity in prison were strong family support, a community forming around my blogging with the prisoners I was blogging about, Mm -hmm. the kindness, and support of the people around the world. My workout discipline, I had a workout partner called Iron Man Martial Arts Guy. And also the yoga and the meditation, as well as all the reading and the writing. And some of those things have carried forward into my life. The therapist said, you know, the path I'm on of learning to be a better person is something that's never going to end. You'll be doing that for the rest of your life. But through the tools, through the philosophy, the psychology and yoga and meditation, it will keep me on that positive path to try and develop and to be becoming a better person. Mm. So, yeah, I've got quite a strict practice of physical activity and meditation. And I've got a meditation instructor. Um, He does a guided meditation. I can just sit there and do my own meditation, and I do all of the different types of yoga. I've got various yoga instructors, and hmm. I do yin yoga, which you'll just lie down and stretch the connective tissue at the joints in these positions that you hold for long periods of time. Okay, And that's the closest I feel to being high is after doing a yin yoga session. Yeah, I come out of the yin yoga just, just smiling and just like, like I'm on ecstasy sometimes, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: The cocktail of chemicals that that sort of thing releases probably aren't dissimilar <laughs> Yeah, it's in just your body. Yeah.
1: Illegal drugs are a shortcut oh. to those feelings. But yeah. if you do yoga over time, you can start to release those chemicals that induce bliss. Yeah.
0: Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got some... D- well, we've, we've been pretty deep already, Sean, let's be honest. Yeah. But I've got some <coughs> other questions that maybe go a little bit go deeper. For it. First one is around um, purpose. Um, for yourself, I mean, what do you feel is your purpose in life?
1: Before I got arrested, my behaviour was selfish. Just wanted to get high, get my party friends high. I wasn't thinking about the harm I caused to society. So first year in jail, I was still wild. If I'd got released, I would have gone right back to that. Second year in jail, facing two hundred year sentence, seeing the suffering of the prisoners. Seeing that prisoners weren't all pedophiles and rapists and murderers like the media leaves people to believe. They were disposable people thrown away, suffering so much pain, they were killing themselves by doing the heroin. Had no educations, a lot of them couldn't read or write a third of them. My selfishness started to go down and my propensity to help people started to emerge. And I started to write, help them write letters home, the Mexicans, uh, to their families. Because some of them worked out in the countryside, they couldn't write home in Spanish. Started to read the legal paperwork. The blog was started to try and uh, change the conditions in the jail. And I thought greed is good. Money is the meaning of life and material things. And I had it all. What happened? Million dollar house swimming pool, jacuzzi, twin turbo Mazda RX-7 out of Fast and Furious one. It gave me some thrill-seeking excitement for a period of time. But I learned that it's our relations with other human beings that is what generates our happiness and our own thoughts. The happiness is in the heart Mm. and what our thoughts make it. Mm. And a lot of that comes from our relationships with the friends and family members that we associate with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and helping people and that's why I'm still on the mission. Yeah. Contribution. Help. Okay, yeah. my ego is bigger than the Grand Canyon. And when you help people, it puts a break on your ego and it's good for your soul. Uh-huh. So I urge people going through their lives right now in the rat race or whatever, I haven't got time to do anything for anybody. Take time out, go and help some homeless people, go and work for a, a charity. There's charities that I work with, Prisoners Abroad, the Kursler Trust, the Howard League for Penal Reform out all over London. People can volunteer and do things. Go out and, uh, and help people less fortunate than yourself. And it's a humbling experience, but you come away feeling this connection with the universal. So when I do a talk, and kids stay behind after the teachers told them all to go back to classes, and they're dragging them out. And the teachers tell me they're the hardest to reach students who are asking all these questions. Mm-hmm. I drove, drive home with, with a bigger smile on my face than you know, having thirty thousand shares of Pacific Satellite on Saturn and seeing that go up to almost fifty dollars a share. Mm-hmm. When I'm on my deathbed, mm-hmm. am I going to look back at all the hours I put in on the stock market, or I want to look back on? Hey, you know, I had this podcast guest and someone contacted him and helped him get a job Mm -hmm. or helped him move and get a house in a different city and helped him get on this path that he was able to rebuild his life. Mm -hmm. I'm getting goosebumps right now just (laughs) thinking about that. That has become my mission. Yeah. So (laughs) when I'm on a mission like that and I post a video about Jamie Morgan Cain and all these people come out the woodwork and try and derail my mission i think that's really sad that people out there and perhaps some of them just didn't understand what i was about because they just saw what the other incendiary video said yeah and thought they were doing the right thing mm-hmm. because i was trying to capitalize on stolen valor which I absolutely was not mm-hmm. hopefully people watching this video now because you elliot and thank you for this opportunity you've asked many questions that have provoked me to fully uh, explain my situation and what I'm about and hopefully some of these people will see this video and it will give them a greater understanding and they won't be trying to derail my mission in the future because I'm helping young people not get involved in drugs possibly saving some of them that might get into situations that could kill them yeah yeah and are helping prisoners rebuild their lives and why shouldn't prisoners be given the opportunity to rebuild their lives absolutely Judgmental people out there will say they've done this. They don't deserve anything. Judgmental people, they've all messed up at Mm -hmm. some point in their lives. And the people who point the fingers at other people the most, what I learned from prison, people who are calling people snitches, people who are calling people sex offenders. It usually comes out that the people pointing the fingers are the snitches and the sex offenders. So they're going through Mm -hmm. their own demons and through their own battles. Yeah, And that's another good way, when people are attacking you, to let it fall off your back like water, mm-hmm. is to say to yourself, that person attacking me is having a bad day. Mm-hmm. That person attacking me, something's happened in their life that's made them like this, and have compassion for those people as well. And mm-hmm. that's the attitude of a yogi. That
0: is a great attitude, yeah. I love that. Thanks. Yeah. And i read somewhere else, and just to sort of touch on this, you said that you now were doing work to try and rebalance, I suppose, the karma, the negative karma that you accumulated doing the bad. I mean, do you believe that that's...
1: When I was on the drugs, Mm -hmm. I was encouraging people to get on that road of drug use that leads to prison, death, and disaster. (laughs) And that was weighing the karma scale way out of my Mm favour. So I, karmically, had to go through this hellfire to purge these things out of me, mm-hmm. that's what I believe, and to give me the lessons, to st- the insight to, to help other people. Yeah. So exactly. Hmm. The mission now. I could I, these these videos I've done about the stock market. I told people exactly when to get in and out the cannabis shares. I told ex- people exactly when to s- s- sell short Tesla. If pe- people who followed this advice and people have messaged me, some have. I've outperformed the top and most professional money managers in the world <laughs> by hundreds of percent. Wow. I could go back to that full-time. Mm-hmm. You've got to, to do it properly, you've got to focus on it full-time because mm-hmm. you're competing against people who've got billions of dollars in assets, people like Don Pena, <laughs> and um, I've chose not to because I want to balance that karmic scale. Mm-hmm. I could be a multi-millionaire right now again by just focusing on the stock market all day long. But I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. My heart and soul is not in that full-time thing. It's still in my DNA because I check it out as soon as I get on my computer every day. Hmm. And I know down the road I'll get back to doing it on a, on a bigger scale than I am now. But I don't want it to derail my mission. Mm-hmm. And um, I've got the skill set to do it, definitely. If, if people can look at my videos and see, people have said, you're wrong about Bitcoin, you're wrong about this, and everyone who's followed the advice has made a lot of money. It's mm-hmm. right there, time stamped, given specifically the advice. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, wanna, I wanna stay on what on I'm, I'm, I'm having so much fun right now helping people and having people on the podcast and uh, meeting yeah. people like you. It's, it's, uh, it's, life, is, life is great. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I appreciate you saying that, I really do. Thanks. Well, what, what would you like your legacy to be, Sean?
1: Well, we've already discussed, just for people to see, um, that I, I tried to make amends from my fuck-ups. <laughs> and, you know.
0: Yeah. How do you define... <laughs> How put you
1: put <laughs> that on my gravestone. <laughs> yeah. He tried to make amends from his fuck-ups. I just wrote my own, whatever it's called right then. Yeah, epitaph. Yeah. Epitaph. epitaph. <laughs>
0: epitaph. <laughs> <laughs> How do you define success?
1: So. I thought success was money mm-hmm. and material things. Mm-hmm. I did a philosophy course while I was in prison. And um, one of the questions was, how do you find the meaning of life? Mm. Some people define the meaning of life through financial success. venue mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Some people, like Mother Teresa, fi- define the meaning of life through helping people. Mm. Uh, with me, I like, I, I think I'm defining success by having the balance right. Trying to get the balance right between all
0: those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. Good stuff. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? From a book or from a person or? I don't have any sort of bias with the question. Um, you choose.
1: My therapist then, in my book, Um, prison time, about 10% of it is my sessions with my therapist. And he said to me that I had to go inside myself to identify my addiction issues, which he enabled me to do. But he also said, there's nothing wrong with channeling your energy into positive addictions, because if you've got an addictive personality and you give up a negative addiction, there's a hole inside you that's created a space that you need to fill. Mm. So, Filling that with positive addictions, getting out of prison, you know, joining the dojo, doing the karate, still getting that adrenaline rush, getting up on the stage, doing public speaking, still getting that adrenaline rush, mm. doing all the f- sports and fitness cl- stuff that I do now. That's all positive addictions. And I believe that that stuff maintains my sanity. I mean, during the email exchange with you before this podcast, <laughs> I was saying, Elliot, I need to get my swimming in. Yeah. I want to stay at hotels where they've got swimming pools. I've got to do my swimming. Because I'm driving around the country, my back's all like this. And it just completely liberates my back from being on the computer and from the driving. And I feel um, you know, mentally healthy after doing that. And it helps me sleep as well. So meditation and exercise are my holistic medication. Wow! And that has all come about from Dr. O. And it's all detailed in the book it would take me hours to uh, go over all the sessions that he did
0: with me to come to that understanding it was a lot of inner work that he facilitated where, do, where does the line exist between a passion and a hobby and an addiction
3: hmm. mm.
1: <laughs> okay i would say that if you have a positive addiction that is your passion they can completely overlap.
0: You think so, yeah.
1: <laughs> Say the question again.
0: Well, I, so I I did an interview, it's just, I did an interview a long time ago, it was one of my earliest interviews, um, and we spoke about addiction, and I said, you know, if you could have a, a positive addiction, what would it be? And the person really said, well, just the word addiction, because it has the negative connotations, you would prefer to have no addictions whatsoever. So I'm just curious as to your thoughts around you know, a, a sort of a, a real burning passion to meditate or go swimming or something, or, you know, when it becomes an addiction. Also, to me, that means that you can't go without it, or that you're somehow going to suffer if you don't have it.
1: Society, <laughs> and this is what's caused people in prison to have a lot of issues with reintegrating, is the label that society puts on people Hmm. with addiction. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, I thought an addict was a person who lived under a bridge, very unkempt appearance, and goes out shoplifting all day. Now, if you've read any Carl Jung, and you read about his description of the shadow side, Mm -hmm. then, The addict has been traumatized and they've got this dark energy inside themselves and that's exacerbated their shadow side. So their shadow side then has got them acting out in the real world with these negative traits, shoplifting and robbing people and doing this stuff. So we've then labeled this shadow side energy as this horrific thing. These people need to be put in prison and society needs to be protected from them. But we've all got that shadow side in us to an extent. And Jung said, you have to harness the shadow side and put the energy into the positive path. So this then ties in with what the Dr. O taught me. Mm -hmm. It goes into that Jungian Mm. concept of the shadow side energy. Mm. So to help the addicts now, we need to relabel from addict, bad thing to, Vulnerable person, person with, person who needs society is crying for help. Yeah, This is a cry for help. It's mm-hmm. acting up from childhood. They've been put in young offenders. They've been put in foster homes. They've been abused in these places. It's a cry for help. Not, this person is a scary bad person who we, d- we should just lock up and not give any help at all and treat like an animal.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Yeah. yeah. If you had the opportunity to speak to your 20-year-old self, what would you say?
1: I can't remember which philosopher it was, but make haste slowly. I think it was a Roman or a Greek. Okay. I started investing at 16, started following stock market at 14. My goal was to make a million by 30 in the stock market. I did make up to 2 million in the stock market and I completely abandoned my slow and steady progress. I saw the excitement of fast cash and uh, the drug lifestyle, and that derailed me from the slow and steady progress. When Escobar was worth billions, his brother Roberto said to him, why don't we just buy our own island and kick back and we won't get arrested. We won't get killed by rival mafia. We can live happily ever after. And Escobar's response was, You want me to kick back on some deck chair, sipping a margarita on some boring old island (laughs) when I'm running this multi-billion dollar drug business with thousands of people working for me. I put the president in power. I decide who's gonna be running our country. You want me to go on your fucking island?" And he just shook his head and didn't do it. And Pablo died as a consequence of that decision, pretty much. Mm because it gets you in the end. So, to young people out there who've got a goal, I say, stay on slow and steady progress and perseverance will get you there, get you there eventually. It took me 10 years as a writer to learn how to start making money from it. I was mm. flat broke, selling 100,000 pounds of a book a year for Random House, and every six months they send me a cheque for 2,000 pounds. <laughs> yeah. Seriously? Yeah, wow. yeah. So. I started writing about Pablo, started my own publishing company. That turned it around and has enabled me to invest in these podcasts. So if you're a young person out there, that took me 10 years. I could have given up at any point in time. Started following the stock market at 14. I didn't make those millions until I was in my late 20s. -hmm. Again, over 10 years. Mm -hmm. They say you've got to put, what is it, 10,000 hours? Yeah, and that's that's exactly what's happened with me. Mm. Now, the other thing is, if you're a young person out there and you don't have a goal, and there's a lot of pressure on young people out there to have goals, I say, let that pressure dissolve. Don't get sucked into that energy because you're on a fact-finding mission right now. This is that period of your life where you're experiencing this, you're trying out this, maybe you're gonna become an intern here, you're gonna try a job there, and you're assimilating all that information and eventually that will steer you in the right direction eventually. Mm-hmm. Look at Robert Greene. Yeah. Look at all of the odd jobs Robert Greene had mm-hmm. that he thought weren't adding up to anything mm-hmm. that were gonna be of no use to him for the rest of his life. And he took all that information, all those office politics and dynamics from all those little jobs that enabled him to produce a book that became a mega international bestseller and got him a TV series. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if you've got a goal, perseverance. If you don't have a goal, Don't succumb to that pressure. Keep absorbing the fact finding, and your heart will steer you in the right direction eventually. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: Mm.
1: Yeah.
0: Love that. Love that. Thanks. (laughs) I sometimes wonder what parallel universe Sean would be doing now if he'd stayed the course. Uh, uh, (laughs) Just, uh, you know, taking the. You know, would I be one of these guys (laughs) in Paradise Valley, Arizona, right now, worth 10
1: million in the stock market? Um, Two Tonys. He had a philosophy on these guys. He said, they're up there doing all the stock market trading while the wives are banging the pool cleaner and the daughters are out smoking crack with some rapper. Is this guy happy because he's in this $10 million house? He's sacrificed his entire life to work and his family don't give a fuck about him anymore because he's never there for them because all he cares about is money. (laughs) I think there's a moral in that story. Yeah, totally, totally.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Last question's a big one. If you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why?
1: It would be something that is never going to change. And it saddens me, because it's at the heart of many problems, including the wars of religion, the wars of politics, what's going on right now with people dying all over the world with the mass incarceration of people. Can you guess what that thing is?
0: (laughs) Uh, Is it drugs? It's
1: bigger than drugs. Bigger
0: than drugs? Money?
1: It's bigger than money. Bigger than money? Religion? It's bigger than religion.
0: (laughs) Oh man, I'm stumped. Uh, Everyone
1: has it in the entire world and it's always been around.
0: Everyone in the world has it. Is it a, a character trait?
1: human nature.
0: Okay, I was I was thinking agreed about, yeah, okay.
1: From being in <laughs> the office environment, cutthroat stock brokerage environment, where brokers were getting death threats and bro- rival brokers threatening to blow their cars up. For, from being in high school where, you know, the rugby players brutalized the little kids. From being in prison where you see neo-Nazi gang members murdering people and just so they can rise up in the gang and earn the stripes from seeing the news headlines i don't watch tv anymore it's a complete drain on positivity and mental energy and it's one of the biggest inhibitors of success i believe is the tv and getting sucked into politics and religion you can put all the energy into your own personal success and development from being in all these different environments and seeing human behavior in every single one of them Human behavior is completely the same. Mm. Human nature is such that people will form hierarchies and one type of people will always brutalize another type of people. Mm. Whether it's the Gambinos, brutalizing the Bananos, whether it's the far right, brutalizing the left or the far left, brutalizing the right, whether it's the communists torturing um, people fighting against communism, or the Nazis Mm -hmm. torturing the communists, or imperialists torturing indigenous uh, tribesmen Mm -hmm. going back hundreds of years, um, Protestants versus Catholics. Mm -hmm. Again, if you take all the people off the world, where does this go? It go. It does not exist. So we create communities, hierarchies, and we victimize other communities and hierarchies that we see that are, are weaker than us. I read a fascinating book called Guns, Germs and Steel. I also read Ed- Edward Gibbon's Rise and Fall of the... Uh, the Klein of the Roman Empire, a long, very long book. And history is just replete with that. Mm-hmm. Whichever civilization has got the most advanced weaponry brutalizes the rest of the world.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, but at what point does, um, or co- at what point could humanity evolve to the extent where those things don't become an issue?
1: I don't think it ever will. Really? That's, no. That's a damn shame. I don't <laughs> think that human nature is malleable. Okay. The brain is malleable. Mm-hmm. You know, neurogenesis and positivity and strengthening those connections to try and make more people um, successful in life and positive is possible. But look at the Nazis. Those guys that were designing and putting contracts up for Auschwitz, and the people who are implementing that. Prior to the Nazi regime, they were butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers. Mm -hmm. What happened, how did did the Nazis harness that? Because inside us, we have the shadow side, we've got the dark energy, and it can be activated at any time. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest activators is patriotism, religion, and politics. The leaders know exactly what buttons to press. Yeah. What did Hitler do? Didn't he fake a fire at the Reichstag or something? Mm-hmm. What did, um, look at how Bush um, capitalized on 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, look at all the wars that have come about since Bush and Blair capitalized on 9-11. Look at how many people have died. Our soldiers, that are given the orders to do the things. And then all the... Have you watched Julian Assange's video, Collateral Murder?
0: I've not yet, no.
1: If you watch Julian Assange's video, Collateral Murder, look at all the people who've died from from certain actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did we estimate now, what is it? A million people have died from from the bombs that have been falling. Not em- enemies, but collateral damage, which means mm. civilians, more than half of them women and kids.
3: Mm. Th-
1: World War. Every century, the world wars have got bigger, and more people have died because of military technology. Mm -hmm. What does that bode for the rest of this century? Mm. You know, we've got the nukes now, so we've got mutual, mutually assured destruction versus human nature. Right now, is what's keeping life in the balance. Yeah. How long is that link gonna last? That chain is that chain. Is something gonna happen? That chain's gonna break. Mm-hmm. And then we go into some post apocalyptic world like The Road, the Compton McCoffey's The Road or Mad Max. Yeah. Jeez. If, if people survive. But you know, that makes me, under my miracle of existence philosophy, enjoy the day even more. Yeah. Because I see how it can all end in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. If you think that you could be arrested anytime. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people get arrested over trivial stuff out they're innocent and you can have your life stealing from you like Steve Navy and Brendan Dassey. Yeah. If you think that could happen at any time or if you think you could die at any time, mm-hmm. it makes you enjoy life all the more. So it's not necessarily a negative viewpoint to say these things could happen because of human nature. It's a way of saying, get out then. Party like it's 1999,
0: <laughs> without ecstasy, <laughs> just with
2: <Joseph> yoga. <laughs> um... <laughs> oh, brilliant!
0: Sean, I've absolutely loved this. That's such a good note to finish on, and just want to say thank you so much for your time and uh, for your for your massive wisdom. It's been amazing.
1: <laughs> I'll tell you what, Elliot, on my YouTube channel. The things that get the most views are prison gang rapes and beheadings. And you've come today with a completely different approach. (laughs) And a lot of the things that you've asked me, my philosophy has been evolving over the years. Mm -hmm. and A lot of the things you've asked me have provoked information that I'm still processing and that a lot of it's only come about in recent years that I've been able to articulate it because I've been struggling to articulate it. Mm-hmm. It's been in there, and it's been emerging and developing. I've, I've been thinking about it constantly because of, cause of the, uh, the influences of the philosophers that I've read and how, how people can use that and apply it into life. And as a public speaker to kids, how do you put that out there in a way they can understand it and take away these tools and, and, and use it in their lives. So even though my life lesson stuff isn't the most watched on my YouTube channel, I hope that the, the people who are watching this video today have got some takeaways and um, it, it helps them. Perhaps some of them, when they're stuck in traffic, <laughs> giving themselves yeah. a heart attack because they're late for school or a fitness class or work, they can just think you know, about me in a cell with the cockroaches all over me, going in my ears and my mouth, oh. or living with a, a serial oh. home invader who's threatening to cave my skull in with a padlock in a sock. These stories can hopefully put what they're going through in perspective. Mm -hmm. They can think about how many sperm in the dad's (laughs) balls it took to meet that one egg and their grandfather's balls and the great-grandfather's balls going back to primordial soup. And it will put everything in perspective and they'll live slightly, have a smile on their face that day and have a slightly,
0: slightly better life. Yeah, cheers. So good, so good. Absolutely brilliant. Sean, man, thank you so much. Appreciate being on Elliot. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. (laughs) You've been listening to Inspired Edinburgh. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe for more powerful conversations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show, and we'll see you at the next episode.